Now let us hear the Lord speak to us as we turn to Second Peter chapter 3 for the exhortation this morning. Second Peter chapter 3, we'll be doing those first verses there, that is 1 through 7. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Please give it your full attention, as this indeed is God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. When I was an English major, they made it seem as if the first sentence or the first paragraph was the most important thing in the entirety of either the work that you were doing or the paper that you had written. The hook or the headline, those things, the beginning was the most important thing. But I would say, and I think this is pretty much well known for most people, that it's actually the ending that matters the most. The end is more important than the beginning. We see this in many different things, one of those being And I wouldn't recommend watching this, but I never have. But Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is no longer even part of our cultural milieu. It is simply gone, although it had seven seasons, apparently, of gripping storytelling. Season eight was so bad that no one remembers it anymore. The end matters much more than the beginning in stories and in life and even in ethics. In ethics, We go to the end and we understand even the things that we are doing now. So Peter actually turns now to the end. He turns now to, not from the the false teachers, now to the end and the teaching that they have on the end. This was indeed their greatest error and the reason why they were such licentious people. So he turns now away from the false teachers specifically and now to their theology in particular as we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And our first section is, verses 1 through 3, our shield and our sword in the righteous fight to remember scripture, great and small. The scripture is our sword and our shield in the fight to remember scripture, great and small. And that is, as I read it again, verses 1 through 3, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
Doesn't this, and this is verse 1 especially, this is uh, coming to uh, the stirring up as we have spoken of before even in Second Peter chapter 1. Doesn't it show us how in need we are of being stirred up as Peter actually wrote not one epistle, not one letter, but two letters to stir up the people of God. Peter didn't write just Second Peter for this. He said, this is now the second epistle that I am writing to you, both to stir you up by way of reminder. These are the only two books that Peter wrote, and his purpose in both of these was to stir us up to activity by way of reminder. This is how important it is, not only for Peter, but for the Lord and Scripture in general, that we live lives according to that very changed nature that we have been given, as we saw in Second Peter chapter 2. Now that we are changed from, in our very natures, that does not mean that our work is over. We are to be stirred up to good deeds. If we live as if our work is over, then, as Calvin says, explaining this passage, we rust. Activity is in our new nature. Activity is bursting forth from this new nature. And if we do not have healthy activity in this soul of ours, then we corrode. Like a fruit tree which does not bring forth good fruit, there's something wrong with the tree. Like cars, dogs, and children, unless we are run and put out to pasture, then we start to break down. Although we do not like to exert ourselves mentally, physically, or spiritually, it is so necessary that Peter, again, wrote two books to bring us to this. We cannot be passive in our lives, Christians. Peter has told us this repeatedly, but must be active in this new nature of ours. So that we ought to do this to ourselves. That is, we ought to remind ourselves of these things. We ought to continually bring us ourselves to remember those things which we once knew. We ought to stir up our own minds, our own sincere minds, as Peter says here. And on the other hand, we ought to be like Peter and bring others to remembrance, for this is what he is doing. If there is a need for other people, they need to know some certain truth from Scripture, we ought to. We ought to help them, show them, Remember them of those things. And going to the second verse, the remember the, to remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments spoken through your apostles of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called not merely to recognize that these texts, by the way, are as Christians, but further to study them. Recognizing them is good. That is Good, we ought to do those things. We ought to read them every morning. But what does it mean to remember? What does it mean to be stirred up? It means to remember what the Old and New Testament say, yes, but we are also to break off the rust in our own sincere mind by doing maintenance in Scripture, by studying Scripture. So that it is here that we find commanded for us what we ought regularly daily to do, if at all possible, to be in Scripture, to remind ourselves, great and small, of the things and the promises of God. Not only the New Testament, as he speaks of the apostles of the Lord and Savior, but also in the Old Testament of the holy prophets of old. We ought to remind ourselves of these things, go into them and understand them. We know he means not simply reminding us as if we were to read them and not understand because he goes next into knowledge. He reminds us of knowledge. We must not only read scripture, but know it, learn from it, 
study it as Peter has done. Peter not only read scripture as we will find in his understanding of the flood, he not only read that, not only memorized it, but he learned from it, which means he meditated on it. He studied these things, and now he understands it in a way that is more than merely simply reading it and seeing it on its face. Scripture teaches us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, as we see in, in, uh, in this, but also in the Shorter Catechism. Peter calls us to go to Scripture and obey. So after hearing the great things we are to remember, which span the whole of Scripture and include the gospel of Jesus Christ, it sounds strange to us then what Peter says in verse 3 about what we are to know. It's odd in verse 3. And he says, as if this were the most important thing, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. He's reminding them of these things. And this is he's, what he says, first of all, they ought to be reminded of. This does not mean that this is the most important thing of all of Scripture. As if you were to read all of Scripture, you must remember that scoffers will come with scoffing in the last days. That is very important to know, and this is why he's pointing to this. It's the most important point that he's dealing with now, not the most important point in all of Scripture. As a small point, though, it has great importance for our lives. Peter points to great and small things of Scripture, great and small points of scripture. He does not focus merely on the things of salvation as if that were the only thing in scripture. No, he wants us to know so we we can live correctly. We can live with knowledge in this life, in this life where we will have suffering, we will have trouble. Peter is making this point that even small things, those things that are not directly tied to salvation, but are tied to even this time period that we live in, is Good to know. First of all, we ought to know. This point is for someone who might miss it if they are looking merely for salvation. We come from every truth of Scripture. Peter didn't miss this. This is the most important point when dealing with false teachers. We learn this from Scripture and from Jesus and the holy prophets of old. We ought to know that in these last days, and we indeed are in the last days, brothers and sisters, ever since the Lord ascended into heaven. We ought to know that in these last days, scoffers will come with scoffing, living just as the false prophets do and did. And this is a satanic tactic. And it has been consistent in this, our age. The more faithful the gospel is preached, the more Satan tries through unrighteous men in the church to slander, blaspheme, mock, and scoff at the truth. This is the warning that Peter has when we are in these last days and that these are the tactics of the enemy in our last days before the coming kingdom of righteousness in its fullness. And this ought to be encouraging to us Christians. If we are a Christian, this is encouraging. I have often wondered before this text really came home why it was that there was so much doctrinal struggle ever since Christ's coming. We don't see this kind of doctrinal struggle in the Old Testament. Not in the same way. Their problem was idolatry, but our problem is false teachers. If you read church history, the church has been fighting for doctrine 
for decades and millennia, fighting for remembrance of the truth amid scoffers ever since the moment Christ resurrected. Peter is telling us that this is expected. And we ought to be armed with our memory to fight against these lies. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as the old English saying goes. So, Christian, uh, these last days are to be filled with scoffers and false teachers. It's more important that you take time to meditate on Scripture than ever before, to study Scripture and to memorize it. Otherwise, the dogs and the pigs will try to make you wallow in the mire of their own vomit. As even Paul says to us, Christians in our own age, this last age, beware the dogs. So he says in Philippians 3, 2. So what do these scoffers say? What is the theological reasoning that they have that has created such a licentious way of living? One of greed and one of sensuality that we saw spoken about so clearly in 2 Peter chapter 2. What do they say? Interestingly, we find something that still continues in our own day, just as you might expect, as scoffers will continue to come with scoffing. There's been a continual scoff from the false teachers to justify all kinds of sin, even today. This is also the lone place in scripture where we get a direct answer to their scoff. Scoffers ought to be answered, indeed, with scripture as much as possible, whenever possible. Peter gives us what the scoffers say. They scoff at the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is the second section, verse 4, the scoffers and their justification for sin. Scoffers and their, how they deal with sin by not dealing with it at all. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. A scoff is common today. Jesus promised to return, but it's been almost 2,000 years since that promise, since he went into the clouds promising to return and judge the world. But even just decades later, here in 2 Peter, these scoffers were saying, where's the promise of his return? They're asking, if Jesus is really to come back, why has he not come back yet? Or do we misunderstand him, saying that he would come back, and we need a new interpretation of what he said? This shouldn't be surprising to us that this is the thing that they focus on. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15.9. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Satan indeed attacks this doctrine of the second coming of Christ as the jugular. Without the second coming of Christ, if this is gone, despite what the scoffers, those false teachers and academics and modernists say today, the religion is dead. No second coming, no Christianity. No second coming, then religion itself is destroyed on earth. His promises to return and judge the world were unambiguous, however, as we'll see both in Old and New Testament We could go on forever just simply quoting these things, but I only give you two. From Matthew 16, 27, one of many, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He is coming, and he's coming to judge. In Isaiah 66, 15, for behold, the Lord will come in fire, 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into his judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So that Old and New Testament point forward to this great day of the coming of God himself to judge. And, and we see that this is what Jesus points to himself and says, I am God and I am coming to judge. So what was the problem? Scoffers and skeptics are not impressed with any kingdom that they cannot see with their own eyes and their senses, just as they are not impressed with our new natures, which cannot be seen on the outside other than by the incredibly different effects, which is our ability to do good and understand spiritual things. But scoffers and skeptics are not impressed with the kingdom that they cannot see. Now we understand why they lived lives of license, don't we? Now we understand their greed and their sensual living. Now we understand because they had no reason to do good. There was no kingdom of righteousness coming. There was no justice. There was no end to their way of life. There was no justice coming. But do we see their method of their argumentation here, though? They are saying, it's been decades. And if it's not immediately coming, then Jesus must not come at all. Shown in this way, do we see the illogicality of that argument? If it doesn't come, if the coming doesn't come immediately, then it must not come at all. It does not make any sense, brothers and sisters. It is simply prejudice. He did not say when he was going to come back, although he gave us signs. They also are arguing the world, that world history has always been the same. Each day is just like the last. World history, so the false teachers say, conforms to my expectations of what my eyes see even now. Every day has always been like every other day. Nothing has ever happened that doesn't look like what I've seen in my own life. This is indeed actually what history teaches now. But this problem was a problem of their own minds. Nothing in what Jesus has said, the Old Testament has said, says that we must think he must come immediately. There was no problem with Jesus' revelation of his own coming, and there was no problem even with the world's revelation of God. The problem is with the false teachers, not with the revelation, not with Scripture. The problem is the false teachers who are not willing to accept what is clearly in front of them because they love their sin. As we see in verse 3, following their own sinful desires. This is exactly what verse 5 tells us, that they repress these things. Verse, uh, verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. They deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Peter shows that these people are not pointing to anything real. The scoffers actually are not letting their eyes rule them well if they were to be consistent. Or they would let this information in scripture help them in their argument and resolve it. No, they willfully overlook these things. Because before their eyes or reason rules them, like all false teachers, it's their desires which rule them. They overlook what would actually correct them, and they do this so willfully. What does Peter mean by willfully? Like someone who's being warned that there's a landmine in the path that they are walking, 
and yet they continue not to look down, but look forward and be in denial of that fact, so the false teachers willfully overlook what is inconvenient for them to enjoy their own sin. They overlook the way God has clearly worked in the past. What was that way that they were overlooking? What was the way that they were overlooking that God had, had worked in the past? He made an end of the entire world. Peter never tires of making this point about the flood. God promised to destroy a whole world in judgment against sin, in righteous anger against sin, a whole way of life, and he came and did it. And the whole world perished, says Peter here. And that is the way that the Lord works. That's why we go to his word. Because if he says he will do it, he will. Peter points the faithful Christian to look at the word of God. The word of God not only says things, but actually accomplishes whatever it does. That is, the word of God created the world Simply by him speaking, the word of God also destroyed it, although it took more time to happen. How did he do these things? In Genesis, he created completely out of nothing, ex nihilo. And in the flood, God even created through destruction, like the flood, or like the, the, the coming flood of fire. The, word that then, the world that then was, was destroyed by God's word, that a new world might come. He created a new world through that destruction. The beginning and the end come about only by the word of God. The word of God, not our eyes, is the ultimate test of what is real and what is true. And this is obvious, or at least this ought to be obvious for us. The case we can easily be deceived in our own eyes is easy. We can indeed be deceived in every one of our own senses. And we can't create anything by ourselves at all. We, have, we can only mold the things that have already been created. So there it, that is, ultimate reality, God himself is the arbiter of truth. Skeptics and those without the Holy Spirit miss this, and they must. If God created the world through words, then his words have more power than the world itself that he created. For if God says it, then it's going to happen. Period. There is nothing else to be said. If God said it, then it's happening. And this is what it means to be a Christian in sola scriptura, to take every single word as truth. Do we have this kind of faith, though? Or do we have the faith of the skeptics who demand that it be demonstrated before us Demand to be demonstrated before us, before our eyes. Do we have difficulty with the words of God and then, like the scoffers, overlook what Scripture says and believe our own interpretations of the world? This is often the case with Christians, and their difficulties with might, might be called the fossil record or something of that sort. They do not believe that God's word is true. And it was by God's word that the world came to be because of some scoffing skeptics who say that it could not be so because of the so-called evidence of their own eyes. But are the words of God constrained by the opinions of man? No, like 
the time of Christ's coming, God's word does not have to conform, or often doesn't, as we should expect a finite sinful being to have wrong expectations, doesn't conform to our expectations. God's power is infinite. What we see will never contradict God's word. But scoffers, yes, Peter's scoffers even, will always try to interpret the word to contradict God. God's power is infinite. Why do we ever say, like the scoffers, God cannot in things that he clearly has shown that he can? He created the world. We Presbyterians ought not to have the scoffer's mind. We Christians say to the scoffers with the word of God upon our memories and our hearts, we say, bring it to those people. Because we have the word of God. We say, bring it to every evil word. This is our guiding star as Christians. As Presbyterians, this ought to be our guiding star. What does God say? What humans say, if it contradicts God, why should I care? We ought to give answer, but we ought not to be concerned about it. God's word is more powerful than any scoff that these scoffers have and have for millennia tried to bring against God's word. And God has always triumphed in his word, for here it is, even in our own minds, in our own laps. It is here before us, despite every attack. And so Peter refutes the scoffers with one simple point. God is in control of all things, regardless of what it looks like to men. And he's shown this in history. And he's shown that if he said he will come in judgment, it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter of the opinion of the entire world. If only eight people think that it's happening, it's coming. Just as he said it would. So the flood proves The day of the flood was set, but it was only known to God, and it came after a long time. Noah and the people of Noah's day scoffed, or rather, the people of Noah's day and the the world of Noah scoffed at the promise of God's coming and his judgment, as it took a long time to manifest itself, just as these scoffers scoff. But for them, although the time of judgment seemed far off, that is, God didn't bring judgment immediately, That meant to them that it was never coming, and indeed it did. No, all it ought to have meant, as it means for us, is that judgment could come at any moment, but that the Lord is being very gracious with us. As we turn to the third point, the kingdom of righteousness, the coming king of righteousness, it'll descend as verse 12 shows us and verses 5 through 7 explain. Let me read the most central verse of chapter 3 in 2 Peter. Waiting for the hastening and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As a result of the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ can be nothing other than a coming of the kingdom of righteousness, where righteousness dwells, says verse 13. We see this implicitly in verse 7. But by the same word, that word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction 
of the ungodly. This is exactly the opposite of what the false teachers want. They want their sin. They want to twist scripture and theology to get it. But at that last day, sin will be destroyed and judgment will come upon the wicked. That is, just like the flood, the unrighteous will not survive this day, though they may run. Only the righteous will be taken into the ark of God and survive. Christ Jesus, the ark of God. Notice how important eschatology is here. Getting back to the intro, the false teachers did not think that there was a coming king of righteousness. And when what you believe about the end colors how you think about the beginning and everything in between. This is also true in ethics. The end is all important for how we think about our everyday actions. If, as the atheist and heretic believes, everything ends in nothing or in heat death, with all the last stars going out, and after millennia of only black holes, even then those stop their own movement, then why do our actions matter? All of it will be forgotten. Nothing will remain. Why not just live it up in all these days that we have while the sun is still shining in health? Why let other people, especially other ethics, keep us from the pleasure that we desire, says the heretic? Why suffer for anything if tomorrow we die? For those views of the world that nothing is coming to the end, but meaningless tragedy, ethics is nothing but a cruel joke. Any righteous action is just a cruel joke. For them, it is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And logically consistent, nothing else, so the heretics ought to say. The end is the greatest influence on our own reasoning and how we live from day to day. If everyone dies at the end of the marathon, then why run? On the other hand, if everyone gets the same trophy at the end, why run at all? Ethics and eschatology the study of the end, are intrinsically related because the end reveals whether our actions matter or not at all. And here, Peter is revealing that the end of the earth is coming because the king of righteousness is coming, the righteous kingdom. Jesus Christ himself is coming and he will reign after fire. The earth is being kept for fire, as Isaiah 66 even revealed in the Old Testament, and not water this time, as He said he would not come to destroy the world with water, but he will indeed with fire. The reasoning for its destruction is because of unrighteousness, the same as the flood. Destroy unrighteousness. So says God, and so therefore it is certain. Otherwise, why do we say these things? Why do we look to this king and kingdom of righteousness if there is not an utter destruction of wickedness? Do we say to ourselves, wow, there is so much suffering on this earth. I hope that there's a heaven. This is what many people do. They reason themselves into heaven, whether they try to reason themselves or someone else or that there is a heaven at all. But this is not what the Christians do. The Lord says it, and so it is certain. We attach ourselves to God's word. So says God, and so it is certain. Unlike the false teachers who take away the coming of Christ, the king of righteousness, for their sin, for the purpose of doing their sin, and do not deal with sin at all, Christians realize that God has said he cannot let sin slide. Even the smallest sin is a blot and blemish and must be cleansed with fuller soap. 
All religions, all religious leaders except Christ and Christianity cannot deal with sin at its root as it ought to be dealt with, but simply forgives us by fiat. Christian, we don't believe this. That God forgives us by fiat, by simply saying things. God has shown that he must, absolutely must, deal with sin in action. The flood, the sacrificial system, and most especially in the death of Christ. They show that sin deserves eternal death and punishment in hell. And if we do not have this in mind, then our lives will slowly become the lives of those heretics who do whatever they want. Because they have denied the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is all important for us in our everyday life. They have denied justice and righteousness in God. Christians, your sins must be dealt with. They will be dealt with if you are not a Christian. On that last day, and only Christ, the commandment of his gospel, has truly dealt with sin for all eternity so that it cannot cling to us any longer, so that we might be called the righteous people of God. Although, yes, we are still in this sinful world, as we have seen before in Second Peter 2, the sinful world kept for fire and judgment. Our sin no longer defines us, and there will be a day where sin will no longer define this world, in a new heavens and new earth. And our nature is not part of this world, brothers and sisters. This new nature that we have, that is why we can rejoice when the whole world is destroyed. Our nature is not of this world. When the whole world burns, we will remain. Because when the fires of judgment came upon Christ on the cross, he remained. And so when we are found hidden in Christ and God, the judgment will fall on others, on those whose sin still clings to them. When judgment comes upon us, we point to our Savior, not to ourselves, who went through the flames of judgment already that are to come upon the rest of the world in time. We point to the King of Righteousness, who dealt with our sin before the end of judgment. He indeed, his work on the cross, is a proof of the coming judgment. They overlook even the work on the cross, these heretics, We point to the king of righteousness and the end time judgment that came upon him so that we might not have that judgment. We look to him in faith and we rejoice in these two things as we will find more and more in 2 Peter chapter 3 that he tarries in his second coming that we might be saved along with the wicked who have repentance and faith in Christ. He tarried that we might live and have eternal life. And second, that he is coming soon to judge both the living and the dead. Now we don't rejoice in the death of the wicked, but then we will rejoice in the judgment of God against wickedness and the wicked. But never forget that we were those wicked people were it not for Christ interposing himself and stopping the sword of judgment upon himself and taking the wounds that we deserve, we would be bloodied on that judgment sword. But as it is, brothers and sisters, it is not our conquering, 
but it is the conquering of the conquering king, Jesus Christ. It is that we follow after him as we follow after David, or the Israelites followed after David, killing the Philistines, or as they followed after Joshua, going into the promised land and destroying all the evil that was there, even the Amalekites, the the great beings there that seemed that they could never be destroyed. He used his people to destroy wickedness. He used his people so that on that last day, not only will we approve of the judgment of God, but we are being prepared for that judgment. We are being prepared for that kingdom of righteousness. We are in that kingdom even now. We too, as part of that kingdom of righteousness, ought also to be like Christ and hate sin utterly now, which only God defines more and more until that day when we will see him as he is and we will approve of every single judgment. Let us be people of the word, brothers and sisters, and not of our own reasoning, so that we might be transformed into the image of our great Savior until that day when we see him and we will be like him. Let us go to our great God in prayer. O great King of righteousness, we thank you that you have given us a place. You go to prepare a place for us, Lord, that we might be with you forevermore. And when preparing that place, you waited that those people who are in time, those people that you chose to repent and have faith in you, to live a life that is in gratitude to you ever after, those people who have the heavenly nature, the divine nature, one that comes from you, that they might walk in a way that is pleasing in your sight, and they might take up their sword, the sword and shield of the word of God, defend against the heretics, and then at the end of days, put us on the offensive against all wickedness that we might have, just like you, that just and holy righteous wrath against sin. Reveal to us the hatefulness of sin. Leave us not in our own ignorance as you left in judgment, those heretics in their own ignorance who overlooked those things, which were to their own demise. Lord, we pray, as you have promised, that you will destroy every evil habit, that you will reveal to us all that is good, that you, through your promises, will bring us to that great day of redemption. Lord, we pray that we would be people of your word, whether it be considered great by the world or small, great even by those around us or small, bring to remembrance those words and stir us up to good works and to defense of your gospel in this age of heretical work. Lord, may you be glorified. Keep us pure until that day when we will be purified even as we are pure. Be glorified, O Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.